Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I grew up on a tiny village up north. It wasn't one of those charming little picturesque tourist villages. Hardly anybody outside the country knew it existed. I hated it there. It was dull and remote. The closest railway station was an hour away, and the nearest big town was a two-hour drive. My home life wasn't that great either. My parents could never stand each other. I could never really understand why they got married in the first place. Whenever the accusations and the name-calling got too loud, I would escape to my great-aunt Elsie's house down the street. Great-aunt Elsie wasn't perfect herself, but she was always kind to me. Even as a child... I could sense that she really wasn't a welcome presence in our little community. She almost never had any visitors, and her little fence was always full of rude graffiti, courtesy of the local teenagers. To describe her as a little batty would have been an understatement. Her house was always full of things. The sofa was always full of hand-embroidered pillows, The kitchen table was stacked with colorful china. The cupboards would be full of yarn and scrap fabric, and the hallway would be littered with heaps of books. She collected porcelain animals. They would dot the windows, the little teapoy in the living room, the shelves in the kitchen, the top of the medicine cabinet in the loo, and you could find a little frog or two on the piles of books in the hallway. But I loved her anyway, and I have fond memories of sitting at that messy kitchen table after having pushed off a bunch of dish rags off the chair, and she would go about making me a cup of tea and some bread and butter pudding. Great Aunt Elsie always made the best bread and butter pudding. 
she made sure to brush the top with some egg wash so it would come out perfectly crisp on top and moist on the inside. We would sit in the kitchen exchanging horror stories as the kitchen sky grew darker and the shadows grew bigger. As I mentioned earlier, she was absolutely mad. She would tell me all these horrifying stories about trolls in the mountains, demons in abandoned houses, and witches in the woods. I wasn't an ordinary child either. I would lap them up and repeat them back to my classmates, much to the horror of my teachers. Great Aunt Elsie always made a point to end her stories by taking my hand and saying, But remember, Carol, she said, her hands warm against mine, the real monsters are amongst us. I thought she was talking about Mr. Smith, the grumpy old man with a permanent frown on his face who lived across the street. He would scare us, particularly when we would walk by his house, and we could catch him glaring at us from his window. He wasn't particularly friendly towards the adults in our community either. Dad once called him a nasty old bastard when he came over to complain about George playing and barking in our garden in the afternoons. I wondered what kind of monster Mr. Smith was. I won't lie, I loved Great Aunt Elsie's horror stories, but they'd always come back to haunt me in my dreams. I would often have dreams about being chased in the woods by Mr. Smith with a scythe in his hands. I would never tell Great Aunt Elsie about it, though. I didn't want to appear weak. Being related to her wasn't great. As I have mentioned earlier, she wasn't very popular in our little village. My parents never spoke about why, but I would listen to the kids at school repeat what their parents would say at dinner. From what I can remember, Great Aunt Elsie was once married to a plumber with wandering eyes and an alcohol problem. A few years into their marriage, he had his eyes on a pretty young barmaid from the only pub in the village. Great Aunt Elsie thought that having a child might solve this problem. They tried for several months, and finally one morning, she found out that she was pregnant. Her husband was suddenly in love with her again. But the happy times did not last for too long, for she fell down a flight of stairs one morning and lost the baby. That night, her husband was back at the pub, while great Aunt Elsie cried alone in her hospital bed. Society back then wasn't very kind to women who had lost their husbands, either to illness or beautiful young women. When great Aunt Elsie tried to get back to living a normal life after she came back home, whispers went around, speculating if her husband was no longer interested in her because she was barren. Eventually, he and the young barmaid disappeared. They had run away together, and great Aunt Elsie was left to fend for herself. I could never ask my parents about this, but I could see how lonely she was, so I made sure to visit her every day. Besides, my parents didn't care where I was until dinner time. 
When I turned 18, I decided to pack my bags and head off to the big city. I couldn't stand being in that grim little village. It was so suffocating. So I applied to a university and got out of that hellhole. I would write to Great Aunt Elsie sometimes. She didn't have a telephone, and I doubt she knew what computers were, so I would stick to sending her the occasional postcard. My parents divorced after I left, so I had nowhere to call home. Instead, I looked for a job and settled down in the big city. I got a call from Mum one evening, and she told me that Great Aunt Elsie had a heart attack when she was getting out some bread. They discovered her will, and she had left her house to me. I took the first train the next morning, and before I knew it, I was climbing out of an old rickety bus onto the quiet, dirty road towards Great Aunt Elsie's house. Mum told me about the spare key under the old tattered welcome mat by the front door. Old memories came flooding back as I stepped into the musty old hallway with piles of books everywhere. While the world outside had progressed by centuries, the house stayed still in time. Suddenly, the smell of bread and butter pudding fresh out of the oven hit my nose, and I felt like I was ten again. Every surface was covered with a thick layer of dust. It looked like Great Aunt Elsie had given up on cleaning in her last days. There were dirty dishes in the sink, and the rubbish bin had flies buzzing about it. There was so much tidying up to do. I walked around the house, trying to take it in. I kept expecting to see her sitting in her favorite chair in the living room, looking through an old cookbook. But she was gone. Great Aunt Elsie was gone, and she was never coming back. I felt guilty as I remembered how I stopped writing to her, except on Christmas and her birthday. I wished I had visited her after I moved out. I noticed the door under the stairs. It was a door to the cellar. I had only been there once, but Great Aunt Elsie got really upset, and she did something that she had never done before. She raised her voice at me. I was frightened. She made me promise her that I would never set a foot in the cellar again. The next day, there was a padlock on the door. In my childish ignorance, that incident was quickly forgotten, and so was the cellar. Now, I was curious. Finding the key was difficult with all the clutter in the house, but I finally found a key in the chest of drawers by her bed. After trying almost all keys, I found one that fit. A wall of dust hit me as I opened the door. I coughed, trying to find a light switch on the wall next to the door. Flicking it on, a dim glow filled the cellar. I made my way down the rickety stairs. It was just as untidy as I remembered. There were boxes piled high all the way to the ceiling. Broken furniture, newspapers, dirty towels and dusty sheets and all other kinds of rubbish. My eyes stung 
and my nose felt like it was on fire. I decided to head upstairs. Just as I was about to turn around, something caught the corner of my eye. There was another doorway behind two rows of boxes. I could see a rusty padlock from the gap between the boxes. The boxes were heavy, probably filled with china and more books. I managed to remove them all out of the way. That's strange. Why did she have a separate room in her cellar? I pulled the key ring out of my pocket. On the seventh try, the lock clicked open, and the rusty padlock fell to the floor with a loud clang that almost made me jump out of my skin. I opened the door. The first thing I noticed was the smell. It was overwhelmingly musty, like nobody had opened the door in years. I looked down and felt bile rise in my throat. I stepped back and puked on the floor next to me. The room was small, like a closet, and to my horror, there were two skeletons slumped against the wall. I could identify them as male and female from their faded, tattered clothing. That's when I noticed something else. There were scratch marks on the inside of the closet door. I have nightmares where I'm trapped in the shower. The drain is plugged and the water won't stop pouring down on me. The water rises to my ankles, to my waist, then over my head. The shower curtain turns to glass and my screams turn to gurgles. Outside, A dark figure appears and presses its face against the glass, watching me. I plead and pound with my fists, but it won't let me out. I swallow water and flail helplessly in my glass coffin. I wake up gasping. I know where the nightmares came from. I never have to dig deep. The incident is never far from my subconscious. Finding it is all too easy. Getting over it is not. It was the summer of my twelfth birthday when the Hudsons moved in across the street. Three people one of them a really old woman. She was tiny, frail, skeletal almost. Thin white hair, a faded blue flower dress. Her head hung from her neck and it wobbled as the man pushed her up a makeshift wheelchair ramp into the house. 
At the time, I couldn't figure out if she was alive or dead. A few minutes later, she appeared in an upstairs window, sitting in her wheelchair. She was directly facing my bedroom. I cautiously peered out from behind my curtains. Her head was upright now, and she stared at me. Just stared, without moving an inch. I closed my drapes. For days she sat at that window. She watched the cars putter down our suburban road and gazed at the neighborhood kids scurrying through their yards. I never saw anyone else in the room, never saw her move from that wheelchair. At night I'd nervously peek through the crack in my drapes. Her silhouette was still in that window, lights off staring out into the darkness at my bedroom. I couldn't tell, but I knew she was watching me. The stories about her cropped up pretty quick amongst my friends in the neighborhood that she was a witch, that she was just a doll, or that she was actually dead. But I knew she wasn't. Sure, I never saw her move from that window. Not once. And I never saw her turn her head. But I felt her eyes move as they studied me. I could feel her watching me. All alone in my bedroom, in the middle of the night, with my drapes firmly shut, I'd wake up and shudder. Her eyes were on me. I just knew it. As a result, I began sleeping on the floor. I felt the lower I was, the better. Maybe she couldn't see me if I was on the floor. I told my parents that the old woman across the street was creeping me out. I pleaded with them to talk to the Hudsons and asked them to move her to a room without a window that faced mine. They laughed and told me to let her live out her twilight years in peace. She was just watching the street, they said, and that probably made her feel happy and younger. Are you just going to stick me in a windowless room somewhere when I'm an old lady? My mom laughed. Remind me to move in with your sister when I'm in a wheelchair. A week later, there was a commotion at the Hudson's. I watched from my bedroom window as Mr. Hudson ran out of the house and opened up the double doors of his van. He jogged inside and reappeared minutes later, pushing the old woman in her wheelchair down the ramp. She looked frailer than before. She couldn't have weighed more than 70 pounds. Her head was flung to the side, resting on her right shoulder. Her body jostled in the wheelchair's seat, but her eyes never left mine. They watched me the whole time. 
He picked her up and placed her in the car. He folded the wheelchair and stuffed it in the trunk. Then he quickly hopped into the driver's seat, his wife into the passenger seat, and he put his foot to the pedal. As they drove away, the old woman's head still faced me. It bobbed up and down as the van reversed down the driveway. I studied her face. It was expressionless, emotionless. Her tongue protruded slightly from the right side of her mouth, but her eyes were still locked on mine. The van accelerated down the street, and it was gone. My parents heard the news that afternoon from their neighbors. The old woman's condition was getting worse, and the Hudsons had taken her to some sort of institution. She wouldn't be coming back. I went straight to my bedroom and looked across the street, smiling. Her window was finally empty. The next day, the Hudsons didn't return. That night, I looked out towards the old woman's window again. There was no one there, no wheelchair. Yet the bedroom light was on. I remember telling my dad I thought it was strange. He just shrugged and said, Must be on some sort of timer or something. I woke up in the middle of the night and nervously peered out my bedroom window. That light was still on. Suddenly, it flicked off, and I ducked beneath my window frame. I slowly looked out, expecting to see the silhouette of that tiny skeletal being. I watched for ten minutes, pinching and straining my eyes to see. The lights quickly flickered on and then off again. That night I slept on the floor again, clutching my pillow close. I had a late baseball practice the next evening. When I got home, my house was empty. I knew my parents were at my little sister's softball game, so I headed to the shower to rinse off. About three minutes into that shower, I suddenly felt cold. The hot steam was escaping the bathroom somehow, which didn't make sense because I knew I had shut the door. Wiping the shampoo from my eyes, I turned my head and heard a strange noise that would haunt me for decades after. The metal rings of the shower curtain being dragged across the shower rod. Someone was slowly opening the curtain. The shampoo stung my eyes, and through the stinging I saw the silhouette of a dark figure beyond. Long, pale, bony fingers gripped the curtain as it slowly opened. Instinctively I backed up as far as I could. Then the curtain opened completely. There stood the old woman. 
I must have only looked at her for one, maybe two seconds, but in that moment time stood still. All these years later I can still draw you a vivid picture of the horrifying image in front of me. Disheveled white hair, bones jutting out from under her stretched skin, stark naked. Blotchy skin, warts all over her body, skinny breasts hanging to her waist, hair where I didn't know people could grow it. She smiled grotesquely, and I felt the cold shower tile against my back and the hot water pouring down on my face. In the other hand, the old woman held a gleaming letter opener. August, she murmured. August, August, August. Mustering all my courage, I leaped past her, knocking her tiny body to the floor. I ran downstairs, naked and sopping wet, yet not caring. In my panic, I somehow remembered I was nude, and I yanked a pair of shorts out of the hamper in the laundry room, sending the hamper crashing to the floor. I raced on foot down the street, eventually winding up at my friend's house. When the police arrived, they found the old woman lying crumpled in a heap on the floor. The shower was still running. The police were all really nice to me, admiring me for my bravery. I told them what she said to me, August, and asked if they knew what she could have meant. It will be August in a few days, one of them said, and you can never fully understand old and crazy, son. The Hudsons only came to our street once more to retrieve their things. The for sale sign was soon up in days. My mom told me they couldn't face the neighbors for what had happened. Apparently they had taken the old woman the man's mother to another special home downstate. Somehow, some way, the woman managed to escape the home and caught a bus back to our town. It never quite made sense to me. She was so old, so frail and helpless. She could barely move those weeks she lived in that house. How had she managed to travel hundreds of miles on her own? Anyway, you can imagine my reaction to all the circumstances. I didn't shower for 21 years after. Instead, I took baths, which I suppose aren't that different. It's still a tub and it involves hot, soapy water. But a shower with its closed curtain water peppering the tub floor and steam climbing the walls. You get lost inside your own head there. Thoughts consume you, and it feels so utterly safe. For a few minutes, it's as if you're alone from the world. It's your own private, misty kingdom. 
but that's what makes the shower dangerous. You're enclosed, vulnerable, naked. You're exposed. I talked to people about it. My parents, a shrink. But mainly I tried to push the incident deep down into places where I couldn't find it again. I didn't talk about it with anyone since I was a kid. Life carried on. Besides taking baths, life was pretty normal. A few months ago, something inside me clicked. I felt the urge to re-examine the incident. It was almost like a voice in my head was telling me to do it. Like my mind wanted closure or catharsis or something. I spent hours online one night trying to track down any information on the Hudsons and the old woman. I finally found what I was looking for, an obituary for the old woman. She had died four years before. Somehow that walking skeleton hadn't checked out for another 15 years. The obituary photo was a black and white picture from when she was a young woman. It was a photo of her and her deceased husband on their wedding day. His name was August, and he looked exactly like me. I immediately shut down the browser and stared at my computer for what seemed like an eternity. It finally made sense why she had called me August, why she was obsessed with watching me through her window. Maybe she used to write letters to her husband, and that's why she was clutching the letter opener that night she came to me while I showered. For a small moment, I felt a little better. Things always feel better when they make more sense. Honey, is everything okay? It was my wife. I think so, I said. That night, I took the first shower I had taken in years. I didn't even jump when the curtain rungs dragged across the rod and my wife entered. But as she embraced me under the hot, soothing water, one question wouldn't leave my mind. Why did the young woman in that wedding photo look exactly like my wife? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
Auntie Bells wasn't really my auntie, or anyone else's for that matter. I'm not sure she had any real family at all. It was just what everyone called her. She'd been a fixture in the neighborhood since long before I was born, and there wasn't a great person who didn't at least know of her. She was something of a living legend, a crazy cat lady type, without the cats. It wasn't unusual to look out your window in the dead of night and see Auntie Belle shuffling down the street. Big walking stick clutched in one hand, her tameless hair shining white in the moonlight. And if you didn't see her, you'd hear her. Auntie Bells took her name from the bracelets she wore on both wrists. Strands of twine run through a countless number of tiny bells that tinkled with her every movement. The first time I saw her, I was a small child. My family had just moved onto the street, and I was playing in our front yard while Mom unpacked inside. The sound, so gentle and enchanting, did not match its source. When I looked up, I found myself staring at what could only have been a wicked witch from one of my storybooks. Dressed in heavy swathes of black, with small, beady eyes and a crooked nose, Auntie Belle had come to a standstill at the foot of our driveway and was just watching me, any expression lost in the heavy wrinkles of her face. With all the certainty of someone about to be lured back to a gingerbread house in Eton, I started to cry, which immediately drew my mother out of the house. By the time she reached me, Auntie Bells had already tottered farther off down the road. When I heard the tinkle of bells through my open window that night, I threw the comforter over my head and kept my eyes squeezed shut until they faded into the distance. We got our first real introduction to Auntie Bells at a block party a week later. She wasn't invited, or at the very least, she didn't attend, but we still saw her walking slowly by, her gaze traveling over all the little children running about. Mum frowned and turned to our neighbor Betsy. Who is that? she asked, nodding towards the old woman. Oh, don't mind her. It's just Auntie Bells, Betsy said. Family of yours? No, that's just a nickname. You know, I'm not sure I even know her real name. Whatever you want to call her, she's creepy. Betsy laughed. She's harmless, just a bit eccentric. I don't like how she's looking at the kids. We've never had a problem with her. Mum made a displeased sound in the back of her throat and ushered me away from Auntie Belle's line of sight. Despite my mom's initial distrust of Auntie Belle's, she never really did cause any problems. It still took a long time to get over being unsettled by her, but she never bothered us and we got used to seeing her around all hours. As I got older, I even started to feel a, a bit sorry for her. Here was this elderly woman who never seemed to have any friends or family to take care of her, just wandering the same neighborhood she'd apparently spent her whole life in. 
After seeing her pass by one morning and getting a pang of second-hand loneliness, I walked across the street to say hi to Ellen, our spunky grandmotherly neighbor who was kneeling in her garden. Morning, Miss Ellen, I said. Hi, Paul. You okay? Yeah, I said, and then I hesitated. Ellen sat back on her heels with some effort and tipped her wide-brimmed hat back expectantly. You've been here uh, for a long time, right, Miss Ellen? Sure, probably going on 45 years now. And Auntie Bells, she has been here even longer? At the mention of Auntie Bells' name, the warmth faded just slightly from Ellen's round face. Yes. How come you and her aren't friends? I asked bluntly. You've both lived here a long time. Shouldn't you be friends? Just never happened, I suppose, Ellen said. She just seems lonely. Yes, well, sometimes that happens when you get old. Something in her tone told me the conversation was over. After that, I took it upon myself to try and be nicer to Auntie Bells. It didn't seem right that she was always alone, and I wanted to try and help. I'd say hi to her, ask her how she was doing, sometimes even walk a bit with her. She never acknowledged me, much beyond a small nod, and at first my presence seemed to only stiffen her. I would catch her staring at me out of the corner of her eye, wary and suspicious. Gradually, she started to relax and would allow me to join her without so much as a sideways glance. She still never said much, but she'd let me ramble on, which felt good to a twelve-year-old who didn't often get the chance to talk to a grown-up so openly. Mom still worried a bit about how safe it was for me to be alone with Auntie Bells, but since we never left our street and Mom could see me at all times from an open upstairs window, she allowed it. I continued my walks with Auntie Bells for a number of years. I learned little of her in that time, but I liked her all the same. There was something comforting about her quiet, steady nature. Although she never looked any less crone-like, any fear I'd once had of her was long gone. Why the Bells? I asked one day. I was getting close to my college departure, and I figured if I didn't ask then, I never would. Auntie Bells, now more wizened and slow than ever, gave one of her thin, liver-spotted wrists a gentle shake. One for each, she said. Each what? But she didn't answer, and she never would. Not directly, anyway. Auntie Bells passed away less than six months later, while I was away at school. No one even knew until my mom realized she hadn't seen her walking around for a few days. A wellness check found her sitting up in a recliner, already stiff and cold. Poor auntie, mom said over the phone after the discovery. No next of kin or anything. What's going to happen to her house? All her stuff? I asked. I don't really know. I guess they'll just auction it off. Poor auntie, I repeated. The thought of strangers rifling through Auntie Bell's things rankled me, 
What if she had something private or personal that she didn't want just any old Joe to find? It wouldn't be right to just let strangers stomp through her home and rifle through her belongings. I realized that Auntie Bells and I hadn't been close in a traditional sense, but I was the nearest thing she had to next of kin. In a strange way, I I felt a keen responsibility to her. I left university that night after sending an email to my professors, letting them know I'd had a death in the family. It was a long three-hour drive, but when I pulled into the dark driveway of what had been Auntie Belle's home, I felt like I'd made the right choice. Better to have someone who cared about her making sure her memories were preserved than some stranger just dumping them all in the trash, I reasoned. Auntie Belle's house was as old and tired as she had been. Years of poor upkeep had left it sagging and rotting in numerous places. I'd never been so close to it before and had never known how deeply the disrepair ran. Even knowing she'd lived in less than ideal conditions hadn't prepared me for this. Getting inside was easier than I expected. The lock on the back door was broken, I assume from the wellness check and let myself in. The smell wasn't anything like I'd experienced before, a cloying, rotten stench that embedded itself in my nostrils. It was death, I realized, and garbage and decay. I gagged, but put an arm over my nose and pushed onward. With my phone held up like a flashlight, I picked my way carefully through the kitchen, stepping over mounds of trash and junk. The living room was in a similar state, a hoarder's paradise of discarded containers and the kind of riffraff you find on the side of the road. The air felt heavy, greasy, and I found it difficult to breathe. Gosh, auntie, I said, and my voice was swallowed by the dark and the dirty. Everywhere I went was just more of the same, until I began to think there was really nothing that Auntie Belle would have treasured. Her bedroom, the bathroom, the small guest room all told the same sad tale of an unhealthy woman who had just let her mental illness run her life. Until I got to the attic. I took down the ladder door, half expecting to be enveloped in a shower of trash, but it only opened into quiet darkness. With a deep breath that I immediately regretted, I climbed up and poked my head into the small room. To my surprise, it was impeccably tidy. I finished ascending and flashed my phone light around with some confusion. Maybe she'd been too old to climb the ladder and it had escaped her hoarding, I thought. But there was no dust up there, no spider webs or animal droppings at all. It was the only clean room in the whole house. It was also the most unsettling. Shelves lined every wall, and upon each rows of dolls sat. Hand-stitched with big button eyes and wiry stalks of hair, they stared at me from every inch of open wall space. 
With my heartbeat quickening, I slowly approached the nearest door and crouched to get a better look at it. Although made of crude and rough material, the stitches were placed so neatly, so lovingly, that I knew Auntie Bells had done each by hand. A little tag tied to its leg read, Lyle Girl 1943. The next had a similar tag, Flanagan Boy 1943. Down the row I went, reading each inscription, one for each doll. When I reached the end, I gently picked up the last one in line. Pearson Girl, 1947, I read. I weighed it in my hand, giving it a little squeeze. Inside, something small and hard rolled between my fingers. Curious. I began picking at one of those carefully crafted seams, until it fell away and the doll split open. Wrapped in its stomach, partially obscured by a wad of cotton, was a tiny skull. I yelled and dropped the doll. It fell to the floor and the skull poked out of the slit in its side, its two black eyes staring up at me. I stumbled away from it, making it all the way across the room until I slammed into an antique desk tucked against the far wall. From inside one of its drawers, I heard the familiar faint tinkle of bells. I turned to it slowly, like I was afraid Auntie Bells would come rising from the drawer along with that sound. But of course it remained shut, until I opened it. Her bracelets, wrapped in thin tissue paper, were sitting on top. Below them a leather-bound book and what appeared to be old surgical tools were likewise wrapped. The sight of a pair of rusted clamps peeking over the tissue paper nearly turned my stomach. Shaken and desperate for answers, I pushed the bells, which tinkled in protest, aside and threw open the book on the desk. The pages were full of precise, neat script, each one detailing names, dates, marital statuses, and months. It took me a moment to realize each name belonged to a woman. Ellen Hardowitz. I ran my finger over the name of my spunky former gardening neighbor and remembered how cold she seemed when talking about Auntie Bells. January 13th, 1956. Married four months. Beside it, Auntie Bells had added girl. I turned again to face the room of button-eyed dolls and slowly approached the one lying on the floor. I knelt next to it and scooped it up again, careful not to touch the bones within. I had never held anything so tiny or fragile in my hands before. One for each, Auntie Bells had told me once, but she hadn't ever said each of what. Now I was beginning to understand. I could see Auntie Bells so clearly, standing on the edge of crowds and watching the children so full of youth and life, never bothering anyone. Auntie Bells, who lived her life alone, quiet and private. The exact kind of woman others would come to when they needed discretion. I replaced the doll on the shelf and stepped back. An entry.
entry in her ledger for every woman she helped escape a motherhood they didn't want. A doll for every tiny body that would never draw breath. A bell for every baby so that auntie would never forget any of them. I burned them all that night, the dolls and the ledger. I knew Auntie Bells would never want anyone to know what she had done. I kept the bells, though, tucked away in an old shoebox in the back of my closet. I like to think that she would have wanted that, for someone to keep on remembering in her place. Whenever I hear similar bells now, I think of her. Auntie Bells, who had no children of her own, or any family really, except those that she kept after their own mothers couldn't.